Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, author and activist Rowan Jette Knox joins me to talk about his new memoir, One Sunny Afternoon, a memoir of trauma and healing. It builds off his 2019 bestseller, Love Lives Here, a story of thriving in a transgender family. This is a very personal story, the new one, about his life and journey, including the decision to come out as transgendered himself. Imagine being able to sit down with a who's who of vocalists to ask them about something they don't often talk about, their singing voice. Well, drummer, reluctant lead singer, and author Jason Thomas Gordon went out to find the best of the best to see what they had to say, and he managed to speak to 70 of them, including massive names like Springsteen, Daltrey, Nix, Smokey, and Ozzy, and it's all for a good cause. He joins me to tell me what they told him. But first, Prime Minister Trudeau announced the federal government today will remove the GST on construction of new rental apartment buildings, lowering the cost of labor and materials for home builders, or at least that's the plan. What kind of impact will that have on our chronic housing and rental shortage? We asked the City of Toronto's former chief planner. Well, first up, Canada's housing agency, we talked about this last night, says the country is facing a roughly 3.5 million housing shortfall by the end of the decade. So the pressure is on for governments at all levels, by the way, to pave the way for more housing to be built and fast. And it's become a political battle as well. That's no surprise. So no surprise as well that the federal Liberals uh, meeting today in London, Ontario, the caucus, at least ahead of Parliament resuming on Monday, came up with something they hope to spark more building amongst other affordability-related measures. Prime Minister Trudeau announced this afternoon that the government will remove the GST on construction of new rental apartment buildings, lowering the cost of labour and materials for home builders. That means a 5% savings for new builds is a way perhaps to incentivize builders and increase supply during this time of high interest rates. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say. This plan is going to get more apartments built in big cities, in small towns, especially along transit lines, and they'll make sure that there are units with two or three or even more bedrooms, the kinds of places families can live and grow. Now, this is not new. It's been called on by, called for by many for some time. It was one of the 10 recommendations made by the authors of the National Housing Accord, which was released uh, mid last month. It's by no means an opposition idea, uh, but it's a promise that Liberals first made in the election that brought them to power nearly eight years ago, back in 2015, which, of course, Pierre Polyev was quick to point out today. Justin Trudeau promised to do this eight years ago. Six years ago, he said, just kidding, promise broken. And now... This morning, just as he got wind that this was going to be in my bill, he's flip-flopped again, and he expects you to believe it. I don't think it has anything to do with, with Pierre Polyev's bill. This is not a new idea, but is it a good idea? Joining me now uh, from Toronto is Jennifer Kiesmatt. She's founding partner at Marquee Developments and was former chief city planner for the city of Toronto. She, she knows this, this one inside and out. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much. Happy to be here. So, I mean, this one's been called on by a lot of people, called for by a lot of people for quite a while now. How much of a difference do you think dropping the GST will make now in this high interest rate environment? Well, one of the reasons it's particularly impactful is because of the high interest rate environment. This is something that housing advocates, myself included, uh, have been calling for for, well, at least five or six years now that the government needs to follow through on this promise, in part because... We need to incentivize the building of purpose-built rental housing 
specifically. And, uh, you know, it, 5% doesn't actually sound that much, but in a high interest rate environment, what's happened is a lot of projects are currently being shelved. They're no longer viable. The margins have become too tight and there's too much risk associated with the broader housing market. So in some ways, it's a perfect time to be really focusing on building rental housing. And this is a tool to incentivize those projects that might be on the shelf, that might have been iced. It's an incentive for developers to, you know, brush off those performers, get those projects out, and to see if they can make them work. I mean, I don't, I don't fully know the math on this, and you do. How does the math work? I mean, how many tens of thousands of dollars are we talking about per unit, for instance, uh, for a developer to say, you know what, not now, and okay, let's go ahead? Well, we are talking tens of thousands of dollars. And in fact, there was analysis undertaken about six months ago that showed that when you look at all the government fees between development charges, uh, property taxes, as well as the GST, when you lump all of those government charges together on any development project, more money is going to the developer, sorry, is going to the government than is actually going to the developer. So the challenge is, you know, look, We have a housing crisis. There's a tremendous shortage of housing. You would think that developers would be lining up to build housing everywhere because you know that housing is immediately going to get occupied, right? Supply and demand. You would think that people would be lining up and saying, hey, I've got a sure hit with building this, this rental building because I know that there's a tremendous amount of demand. But that's not happening. Well, why isn't it happening? It's because the cost of borrowing has gone up so astronomically. Just like it has on your home mortgage, people who've had to renew have seen their mortgages go up significantly. Same thing on a construction project, but now you have to multiply it over multiple units, 10, 20, or in our instance, we're building thousands of homes. You know, we're in the tens of millions of dollars of GSD charges on our development projects. And some of those projects, the math just doesn't work today. It was interesting. I think you mentioned this earlier today. Um, there was a, sort of the sound of developers, because there is so much demand, the sound of developers dusting off some of those project plans today when this news <laughs> was announced, I gather. Yeah, well, we were we were the ones doing the dusting. Um, yes. You know, we have some projects that they worked um, a couple of years ago when we first initiated the project, as we began the approvals process. They worked as rental projects, and in part because... CMHC has a rental construction financing program that worked with low interest rates. That project no longer works. And as a result, we have actually recalibrated some of our projects to be condos. Because with a condo, you get developer gets a deposit at the outset that then um, can be used to um, facilitate the construction loan. You don't actually have that with rental, right? All of your income comes after you've gone through all of the upfront costs of building the building and getting the building occupied. So, you know, high interest rates meant we had to look at some of our projects and say, well, wait a minute, the cost of borrowing is so high, maybe we're going to have to do condos instead, even though we prefer to build purpose-built rental, in part because there's such an astronomical gap in high-quality rental housing in Canada, in in great communities and high-quality buildings, which is what, what we're focused on. So, you know, this announcement went exa- meant exactly that. We We pulled out our performance today and said, okay, um, you know, in the very first project that we looked at, which is a, uh, it's a a condo tower on transit, just like the prime minister said in his announcement, it's on transit. 
and it uh, we were we were going to be making this project a condo. We ran the numbers, and we're now going to make it a purpose-built rental building with 30% affordable housing. So right. again, it's just math. And when the math doesn't work, you don't you can't do that. When the math does work, you do. And that's the tangible impact of this announcement and the removal of the GST. And long before what we now refer to as a housing crisis, there was a purpose-built rental crisis in this country. I mean, even in the place I'm, I'm in Victoria, all the purpose-built rental, other than some very new ones that have gone up recently, all of it looks like it was built in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, it's absolutely true. And it's kind of funny because if you look back, and you're not wrong in your observation, the vast majority of purpose-built rental in this country was built in the 70s. And if you look back and you ask the question why, strangely, it's not because there was liberalized zoning at the municipal level. That's not the reason why. Often, you know, we often hear that as being the crux of the problem. And it is part of the problem, but it's not the whole problem. If you look back, why did so much uh, and by the way, cooperatives um, got built at that time. There were community land trusts that uh, came into being at that time in the 70s as well. And also, it was the peak of our building. We built more housing in the 70s uh, than we build now, even though we're a much larger population. If you ask the question why, like why was that happening in the 70s, you can actually point to federal financial programs. So there were programs and incentives at the fin- at the federal level that were the impetus for those developments taking place. And so this is why this announcement is pretty exciting from my perspective, because it's the federal government actually taking some carriage and some ownership over driving purpose-built rentals in Canada, which, you know, quite frankly, we haven't really seen that. It's, it's always been about um, figuring out a way to get, uh, you know, marginal um, the homeowners into the home ownership market, which leaves a tremendous number number of people out in terms of accessing stable housing. Where do you think, I mean, there's a lot of blame going on out there, but where do you think we need to get rid of the logjam the most? I mean, you talked about the money, that's great, but there's a lot of other logjams out there. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of log jams. I think that's why we have a crisis. <laughs> it's because yeah. there's no, you know, there's no golden goose. Solve X and this whole thing goes away. Um, I think that is really at the crux of the issue is that, you know, there's a labor shortage problem and high construction costs that are, are part of the problem. There's the municipal processes that you reference, the that, you know, quite frankly, can be quite excruciating and costly because they're often drawn out with, you know, multiple consultations as a way of avoiding decision making frequently. And then on the other side, you have the whole banking problem. How are you going to guarantee your project? How are you going to get your upfront financing to get the project built? So you've kind of got like three buckets, if you will. There's the labor and construction bucket. There's the policy and regulation, which also involves the province a bit, but um, it involves both municipalities and the province. And then the third bucket is on the financing side. So obviously, the GST announcement is very specific to trying to make the math work on the financing side. The other questions are really critical and legitimate because that alone won't solve the problem. Also announced today, and the Minister of Housing is getting more and more aggressive about this, um, a housing accelerator fund was put in place, $4 billion, by the federal government uh, about two years ago. And for those of us who watched this really closely, we haven't been too happy because the money hasn't been flowing. It has seemed like nothing is happening. Well, what the federal government has announced and what they're doing is they're working with municipalities 
and they're incentivizing municipalities to change those zoning processes. So it kind of gets to the problem you're raising about the long council meetings. The federal government is now saying, hold on a minute, we're not just going to shell out this money to municipalities. Instead, we're going to reward municipalities that put more liberalized zoning frameworks in place and make the process of getting housing built from the regulatory side easier. So they've kind of connected those two things. So that's something else amidst the GST announcement that may have been missed that is also a really big deal. And it is, it's kind of, they're, they're, you know, they're not nudging mayors and councils. They're giving them a big whack on the back and saying, hey, you've got a housing crisis, you need money, liberalize your zoning, do your part. And if you do your part, we will provide funding for getting housing built in your municipality. So that's another piece of the puzzle that was announced as well. Everyone wants more housing except in their backyard, right? I mean, that's what we've run into in many places that I've lived. It's like, yes, more housing everywhere, but wow, those build, those tall buildings are really ugly. I, I don't like them. You know, there's that, that nimbyism that exists in this country that is a big problem. You, you know, you were at the city of Toronto. What do you think of the idea? Because I think Pierre Polyev's plan is a bit more carrot and stick. Uh, what do you think of the stick? Is that going to work? Well, I do think you always need the carrot and the stick, but I do think there's one of the challenges with housing is that there's, There's so many different factors at play that influence the timing of how housing gets developed. And I'll give you a very specific example. Uh, When I was chief planner, we were building out 17 kilometers of LRT and we were putting the plan in place. We redesigned we redesigned the street. We redesigned the sidewalks, put in, you know, bike lanes, green infrastructure. But we also did something that had never been done before, which was a mass rezoning. And we upzoned the entire corridor to between eight and 12 stories, which is along 17 kilometers. Let me tell you, that's a lot of housing and a lot of density. So we did that in part because the industry was kind of banging on my door and saying, the process is too long, make it easier to build uh, mid-rise housing and we'll build it. And I said, okay, okay, I'm going to do that. So we ran the consultation process. We did the massive rezoning. Do you think the developers showed up and built that housing? Uh, no. Well, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> no. And you know why they didn't? Overwhelmingly, um, most of them decided they wanted to do a rezoning anyway, because once we gave them eight or 12 stories as of right, they decided they wanted to get um, 13 or 15. So there's, a, there's this weird speculation that happens in many Canadian cities where there's a very high amount of housing demand. And so this is why, um, look, the GST is really good, and I think the incentives tied to the Housing Accelerator Fund are really good. But I do think we have to be cautiously optimistic because the housing market is so complicated, as my example of upzoning the Eglinton Corridor, which, you know, the industry said, do this, we'll build the housing. That didn't happen for a whole variety of reasons. I remember it well. Yeah. Well, Jennifer (laughs) Keysmat, thanks so much for for shedding some light on this. Your insight is fascinating. Uh, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, Let's go to the Maritimes now, because it was not quite a year ago, a year ago next week, I think, or about 11 days, that we were talking about the horrific damage that Fiona, the remnants of that hurricane, uh, was doing in parts of Nova Scotia, obviously Cape Breton and Newfoundland, PEI as well. Well, they're bracing for another damaging storm this weekend. Uh, Winds, power outages, floodings, as Hurricane Lee approaches the East Coast. We don't know how powerful it's going to be, potentially a post-tropical storm by Saturday. 
when it enters Canadian waters. Environment Canada is warning New Brunswick that hurricane conditions are possible, though, along the southern coast on Saturday afternoon and evening. Bonnie Morse is the mayor of Grand Manan in New Brunswick. She said that residents on the island are preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. The concern, I mean, obviously, is the fact that the ground is saturated and the trees still have all their foliage, so it makes it that much more likely that there could be power outages. Indeed, the Weather Agency has also issued hurricane watches for several counties in southwestern Nova Scotia, where winds could get up to as high gusts at least uh, to 120 kilometres an hour. So joining me now is Jason Mew. He's Director of the Incident Management Division with the Emergency Emergency Management Office with the Government of Nova Nova Scotia. Uh, Jason, uh, busy days. Thank you. Yes, well, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. So not entirely clear. I mean, there's been a lot of sort of speculation about where this storm is headed. We have a slightly better idea now. What are you preparing for? So, you know, we're preparing for uh, for a hurricane to make landfall in Nova Scotia. We're certainly making preparations for strong winds and, and a lot of rain. Uh, thankfully, the system is downgraded over the last couple of days, but still strong enough to uh, pose considerable damage to the province. So definitely uh, getting ready. We're activating our Provincial Coordination Centre uh, tomorrow at noon with all our key partners. Uh, just anticipation for the storm to hit and getting ready for anything that might impact uh, the province. You've had a lot of practice over the last 12 months. I mean, this is from people watching from the outside, but you've had Fiona, you've had flooding, you've had fires, you've had a lot going on. Um, what does the preparation look like? Is it become something that uh, that sort of you put into place? It must be it must be getting pretty well-oiled at this point, if you can forgive that expression. Yes, uh, unfortunately, we're getting more practice than we want uh, these days, and it uh, makes for busy times. But uh, it does help us refine a lot of our processes and, and the way we do business. So uh, a lot of these processes have been in place for a long time. It also infect, affects our training and the way that we exercise with all our key partners. Uh, it just allows us to identify any gaps and how to better, uh, I guess, enhance our, our, our response to these types of events. But, you know, certainly you don't want to be too busy, but obviously we've been very, very busy this last uh, couple of years with events and uh, climate change certainly seems to be posing uh, adding to to the, I guess, the severity of these storms that we're facing. But, uh, you know, preparing for a whole of government response is basically what we're doing now uh, uh, several times a year. So it's certainly busy times. Yeah, I mean, it struck me, and I don't know whether I just wasn't paying as much attention, but hurricane season is now a thing uh, in the Maritimes. It is. Uh, I know uh, before my time at Nova Scotia EMO, um, they went years without having a hurricane uh, make landfall anywhere as close to Nova Scotia. Um, and activating our op center was a rarity. It, it rarely happened. Uh, now we're activating the Provincial Coordination Center uh, over a dozen times a year, uh, sometimes for, and when we activate, we're activating 24-7, and sometimes we're activated for two or three weeks in a row. So it's uh, these are very severe storms that are starting to impact uh, the province and uh, definitely challenging times for a lot of first responders, municipalities, and other key stakeholders that have to deal with these situations. What does that coordination look like? Because I imagine in Nova Scotia, like so many, like every other province, you have you know, a whole combination of sort of big city fire for firefighting uh, systems. You have you have community volunteers. You have lots of different agencies around. Uh, how do you bring that all together? Yeah, so that's uh, so our municipalities have their own uh, emergency operations center that they can activate to bring in their key partners locally. Uh, we obviously activate our provincial uh, wide uh, provincial coordination center. We bring in a lot of the key stakeholders and critical infrastructure providers. So we're in constant contact with Irving and Nova Scotia Power, Imperial Oil, a lot of these people that provide critical services to Nova Scotians. Uh, but having them in the Provincial Coordination Centre really does help when we have these impacts so we can lean over, talk to someone. And a lot of times 
having all those key partners in the same room really allows us to respond quicker and more effectively. How have you adapted now? I mean, I know obviously you, social media was the place to go for a while. We know there's been issues with that of late. Uh, how are you trying to coordinate getting out those messages? I know obviously emergency alerts are something that you're responsible for. Uh, how do you go about doing that? So there's a very well-established process in the province here for requesting alerts. Um, any municipality, First Nation, police department can request an alert through Nova Scotia, uh, EMO. And uh, we, uh, one of our key partners, Public Safety Field Communications, takes those 24-hour calls, 24-7. Uh, so we get that information and we send it out, uh, but we do need that request to come in from our partners mm -hmm. uh, because they're really the boots on the ground uh, in those municipalities that know what's going on in real time. Uh, and that's that's just a tool in the toolbox. Alert Ready is one tool. There's obviously social media. Uh, there's obviously television, radio, uh, visiting your municipality's website for more information. Uh, so there's a lot of good information there, but we want to make sure that people go to trusted sources for information. Uh, so, you know, going to Environment Climate Change Canada for your weather information and other trusted uh, news broadcasters, not necessarily going to someone you might know on social media that you don't recognize that website. Sometimes it's not the greatest information, but certainly a lot of different avenues there to get information these days. On the ground, I mean, Fiona's now just a little uh, less than a year ago. I am, I'm assuming there were scars left from that. There's been, there was flooding over the summer. Uh, we know there was the wildfire situation as well. Uh, what kind of challenges do you face on the ground because of the impacts of previous natural disasters? A lot of times uh, with previous storms, uh, you can have some damage to trees where they're leaning, but they might not have completely fallen. So when you get another storm, some of those trees that are already partially damaged might you know, fall all the way over power lines. Uh, you might have some uh, roads or roadways that might have been weakened uh, by some runoff or some, some localized flooding. Um, even if you're looking at storm surge, there might be something that might have been impacted in the past. So Sometimes a combination of storms really has a larger impact on that critical infrastructure. So it's something that we ask our key partners to not only keep a close eye on, but, you know, to report any of these issues to us, uh, you know, when it happens. Yeah, I guess it's a bit like a boxing match, right? Through every round, the blows take their yeah, toll. Exactly, exactly. Have you been working at, at, at sort of, I, I know there were issues this summer with, uh, with, with the way roads are built, not built to handle the kind of flooding uh, that exists these days where you are. I, I suppose one of the lessons here is to continue to build for, for longer term resilience as well, not just facing each storm as they come. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, that's a, a policy we have here in the province where we're always trying to build better. So, uh, you know, what used to uh, handle the, uh, the water flow uh, in a culvert nowadays sometimes doesn't. Uh, handle that flow. So whenever we lose a culvert, uh, the engineers are taking a look and saying, you know, let's let's double the size of that culvert. You know, we're going to have to reinforce that. Uh, a lot of that goes on. Even bridges now, uh, they have to sustain, uh, you know, more uh, impacts from from the environment and from these storms. So uh, the engineers are continually looking at that and trying to upgrade those roads and make them more, I guess, mitigate those those effects of the storms. I know this didn't come on quickly, but in some senses, it does feel like the role of your office even has become, you know, the parameters have changed in the last decade. And and here we are watching it. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, uh, Nova Scotia EMO and other EMOs across the country are getting busier and busier uh, every year uh, to the extent now that uh, uh, you really don't have a rest period before you, know, you had a busy season where it might be in the fall and you get your storm season with winter storms. Uh, but then usually in the spring, sometimes you might get a break, but now we're getting floods and wildland fires. So it, it is, it's almost like working on a plane that's in the air. You're trying to 
advance a lot of your work, but obviously when you have large responses, everything stops uh, to be able to respond to that and, and collectively as a whole of garment uh, to try to mitigate some of those impacts and, and bring that critical infrastructure back up to a, a functioning level and a, so that residents and, and just you know people can get back to their normal lives. Well, Jason, I hope uh, Lee is gentle on the province. I think he could use a break. I, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Take care. Let's head to Libya now. Derna is actually a city I've been to when I was in Benghazi back in 2011. That's how we got out of the country, taking that coastal road. It is a beautiful place. It is a place of enormous tragedy right now. According to the Libyan Red Crescent, the death toll is now around 11,000. There's a further 10,000 people missing in that coastal city caused by the most deadly flooding. Uh, that The worst hit area there now, but the, this flooding was unbelievable. And two dams seem to have broken as well, uh, which caused even more destruction. Joining me now is Esther Benghizi. She was born in Benghazi uh, and came to Canada as a child. She still has family in that region, including in and around Derna. And uh, she joins me now. Esther, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. This is, uh, I mean, I, I, it's hard to put into words when one sees the pictures of what has happened there. It is so incredibly devastating, uh, this this flooding and these dam breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's extremely tragic. We're still actually trying to come to terms with what's happening and it's um we're we're still at a loss of words and and still trying to to grieve and, and also take action at the same time when you look at just with what's happened so that listeners understand a little bit about the circumstances there was this huge storm which would have been you know could have caused damage in of itself but it was these two sort of older dams that seemed to have burst or broken and that just kind of caused these slides just push a lot of a lot of this city a quite a populous city right into the ocean. Yeah, exactly. So we had two dams that were built in the 70s. Um, There was actually research done, I believe, in the last few years that highlighted that these dams required maintenance um, as they could potentially um, wreak havoc. And that's exactly what has happened. Uh, And unfortunately, due to the lack of kind of lack of uh, just resources that Libya is due to the ter- political turmoil, turmoil happening right now, due to the lack of resources allocated to infrastructure, uh, resulted in the rupture of these dams. And no warning system, obviously, for the people who live there either. Uh, well, from what I've been hearing from family members and friends, there was like very briefly a warning system, but nobody really highlighted the severity of this. Um, so there was just like a curfew issued uh, a few hours before it had burst and really there was no lack of urgency or anything like that and nobody really highlighted the severity and uh, how potentially dangerous this could be and unfortunately this has led to a catastrophic event with the several thousands of, of casualties You've been talking a bit about why that is some of the difficulty in trying to establish uh, a death toll, unfortunately, is that you've talked about this, that in the area, multi-generations of the same family will live together. So in some senses, the big fear here here is that entire families have been been lost. Yeah, so Libya is a very tight-knit, the Libyan culture is a very tight-knit community. So oftentimes what you'll see is in neighborhoods, people um, are living together beside their families, their uncles, 
similar similar as to my family in Benghazi. I have an entire street where all my uncles and aunts and everybody lives uh, together. And so unfortunately, despite how this can have positive effects, um, you know, this could be devastating when there's tragic events like this that could happen. And so we've seen this happen with Darnas, that there has been a tragic events and this has resulted in generations um, completely just destroyed and that have been lost, lineages that have been lost due to the result of just what our culture is like. Yeah. yeah. I understand you have, you have, that part of your family is from that that very area. Um, have you been able to get into contact with with loved ones over there? Has anyone in your family been able to make sure that everyone is okay? Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, I do have family members and relatives that have suffered severely um, and have lost their lives due to this tragic event. Oh, sorry. Um, and thank you. And and unfortunately, unfortunately, sorry, we've been able to reach out to many of our family members through platforms such as Facebook. Uh, right now, it's the kind of electricity and stuff is really unstable. Um, and so getting reaching out to our families and getting in touch with them has been extremely difficult. But luckily, through platforms such as Facebook, people have been able to check in and mark themselves safe. And so that's been extremely reassuring. And uh, I've been able to just go on to my account and, and uh, check in on my family members and attempt to call them. But it's been extremely difficult to trying to reach them so i've been using facebook to to get in touch yeah i know i know you're also trying to rally help here uh on this side of uh, way over here to try and help out what have you been doing uh so really i've been working alongside the libyan community here in canada um and we've been trying to raise funds and gather supplies um and getting in touch with organizations that are on the ground in libya also just getting in touch with our family members that are are that are there uh, in order to send like necessary supplies, uh, offer our financial assistance and also offer emotional support uh, and raising awareness. I think right now what the Libyan people really are looking for is us to raise awareness on the situation. I think they feel really abandoned uh, by the international community, especially because there's been so much foreign intervention over the last few years in Libya. Um, and so Libyans feel extremely abandoned uh, and so what we've been doing is just really raising awareness and making sure that people know what's going on and and that they know that there are resources there that they can, um, you know, they can use to to help um, those who are affected by by the floods. And, and that's what we're really trying to do right now is gather these resources and uh, advocate as well to to governments to to step in. And one, I mean, it's not even time to think about the rebuild of all this yet, unfortunately, because there's so much work in the recovery process that still needs to be done and the rescue process. But but at some point, uh, this area is going to need some some investment as well. And, and one just looks at it and thinks this couldn't have happened in, in a more this couldn't have happened in a worse place uh, because just the infrastructure isn't there to help. Uh, already those roads are cut off. I mean, I'm mentioning that I've been there very briefly once. It's hard to get the, it's hard to get in and out of the area. Um, and, and the international community is not really on the ground there. Yes, that's it. Um, so right now, what they're doing is they're trying to focus on short-term assistance, but we really need to look at the long-term solutions to this, to this uh, catastrophe. There's actually already concerns about other dams in the area 
um, that might suffer the same fate. Uh, and so we need to figure out how we can prevent this from happening. And I'm hoping that with this type of event, that this will, you know, be pivotal in, in, in shaping the future of, of Libya and maybe changing the direction of what how things are going right now into turning it into something uh, maybe a bit more positive and and now people will some come together will start to come coming start to come together sorry and um come in sail so, come in solidarity and and hopefully do something to to prevent this from happening well Esra, thank you so much i appreciate it thank you so much thank you so much for having me if you could sit down with one vocalist one singer and ask them about their singing voice who would it be Terry in Winnipeg gave us two. Colm Wilkinson was the lead in the Toronto production of Phantom of the Opera. Also, Julie Andrews, another... I, I, I asked you, but it's funny, because my next guest has interviewed 70 singers, some of the biggest names that you could, you've ever heard of, and you haven't mentioned... Our listeners have not picked one of them yet. Uh, and and um, the best singer, Peter, uh, you continue the streak. Another great singer, Karen Carpenter, of course, had, a, had an absolutely beautiful voice. But imagine being able to sit down with a virtual... Music Hall of Fame to ask some of the greatest vocalists anywhere about something, you know, they're not often asked about, at least not that you see. And that's their singing voices, their most prized and ever-changing instrument. Um, the inspiration for this incredible project was born in some ways out of necessity or at least requirement. Jason Thomas Gordon had been the drummer for an L.A. band called King Size when suddenly, and maybe reluctantly, he became their lead singer. So he went out to find out, well, how does one do that? How do all these famous lead singers, you know, how are they trained? How do they treat their voices? How do they take care of them? And there was nothing out there. Now, he's certainly risen to the occasion. That is King Size um, and Jason Thomas Gordon. He also, again, he realized there was no guide out there, right? So what to do, what to do, what to do. And there's a Canadian connection. You know how much we love a Canadian connection on this side of the border to this story. Uh, and one of modern rock's greats, great vocalists. Uh, Toronto, the city of, and Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam. So Toronto and a chat with Eddie Vedder and seven years or more later and a project involving a list of singers that would be even the most casual music fan take notice is produced. Now, as I turned to the book, I was turned on to the book by a social media post by Brian Adams, who was really excited to have taken part. You know, he's been on the show before. Oddly enough, we've never spoken about his singing voice. We've talked about his photography. So there you have it. But listen to some of the names uh, that Jason sat down with. The late Tony Bennett, Belinda Carlisle, Nick Cave, Roger Daltrey, Sammy Hagar, Emmylou Harris, Chrissy Hine, Joan Jett, Simon LeBon of Duran Duran, Getty Lee, Johnny Rotten, Michael McDonald, Willie Nelson, Stevie Nicks, Ozzy Osbourne, Steve Perry, Smokey Robinson, Bruce Springsteen, Rod Stewart, Ann Wilson, Tom York of Radiohead, and many, many, many more. It is a remarkable piece of work. And to top it all off, all royalties from the book will go to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, a part of Jason's life and family that is in many ways as important as the music itself. The book is called Singers, The Singers Talk, and its author, drummer and lead singer of King Size, Jason Thomas Gordon, joins me now to tell us all about it. Jason, thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh my goodness, that was a great intro. Thank you so much. I'm honored. What a great book. I mean, I, one of the things, and I'll tell you this just from having, you know, I do a lot of interview chasing, as you probably know. I can't believe you managed to, to land those 70 interviews. That was hats off. Hats off from one chaser to another. Hats off to you. Uh, just incredible. Thank you. I can't believe it either. 
So tell me about this Canadian connection, because, you know, in Canada, we love a Canadian connection. So this is this sort of the genesis of this happens in Toronto. It did. Yeah. Yeah. My uncle Phil made a a film called Body of War about a Iraq war veteran who came home uh, and was speaking out against the war. After 9-11, he a guy named Thomas Young, who's sadly passed on now but was confined to a wheelchair um, after the war. And, and uh, he had signed up after 9-11 to go fight uh, terrorists in Afghanistan. And then they changed uh, his marching orders to Iraq. And uh, it, he was infuriated because he felt like we weren't attacked by Iraq. Um, and he ended up um, being, being bombed out there in a convoy and uh, with no protection and ended up in a wheelchair so my uncle Phil made this uh, documentary about him called Body of War and about America's uh, decision, the body of Congress, uh, to go to war and how that affects just one American family. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this man, Thomas Young, his, his actual physical body. And it's a beautiful film. And Eddie Vedder d- uh, did a bunch of the songs for it. And so I was lucky enough to go to the Toronto Film Festival to the premiere, and I met Eddie Vedder there. And we ended up, I, you know, I tried to, I kind of tried to avoid him all night just because it was so, you know, obvious that I was going to be a super fan. So I, I basically tried to stay out of the way and not geek out on him. But uh, at one point I was at the bar having a drink and he approached me and he came up to me and he goes, so your aunt tells me that you're in a band. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And so we started talking. And at that point, I had just started singing for my band, having been a drummer my whole life. And we ended up having this beautiful conversation about music and just a you know, couple of music fans talking about music. And he was just a great guy. Just couldn't have been kinder. And at the really, end of the night, he left yeah. the bar. And I realized, oh, my God, I never asked Eddie Vedder how he's not blowing his voice out, screaming his head off every night, you know, night after night. And it started me on the path of going, you know what, maybe I should ask these singers how they're doing it because singers never get asked about their voice. They get asked about everything else. They're the spokesperson for the band, but never anything about how you do this. You know, do you warm up? Do you warm down? You know, all those kind of questions. But also, I wanted to make it fun and make it something that even if you're not a singer, it, it could be a resource guide for singers. But like, what about music fans? Would they still dig it? And so it would be really funny stories, too. You know, like, tell me what the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you on stage was and stuff like that. And I just became obsessed with this project and started reaching out to singers. And, and here we are. Here we are. I, I, there's a great part at the beginning of the book where, where you're sort of talking about how you what made you want to write this and it's you're, you're sort of becoming a le- the lead singer for your band king size and you, you, yeah. you i think you write this at all caps singing is brutal <laughs> you say singing is brutal <laughs> and everyone always thinks singing wow what a great it must be what a great what the best job in the band right but you were like no way this is tough yeah drumming is the best job in the band as far as i'm concerned <laughs> um you know singing is a totally different thing and Let's let's keep the uh, Canada connection going. You know, you, you've got guys like Getty Lee in this book, and Getty is talking about how he won't even shake people's hands. Getty has become a germaphobe. He's terrified. There's all these little rituals and you know voodoo involved in this that that people never really talk about. 
And so it's funny to see your heroes expose themselves like this and be really vulnerable and tell you all these weird things about their personality. And that's what it is. It's like singers. It's not just, it's not just getting up there and looking cool and singing. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's a whole different change in your personality to actually do this night after night. Yeah. You pointed it out because the one thing, and I, you know, I hadn't thought of this and it's so obvious that the voice is not like any other instrument because it changes and it, and it reacts to you. It's not like a guitar. It's not like any instrument that you can replace or tune. I mean, the voice is you and it changes over time. Uh, it's a really, I mean, you point out the real, some real interesting parts and that must make the owner of said instrument pretty eccentric about it yeah absolutely i mean what name one other musical instrument that changes as you age you know it's a it's a living breathing instrument that changes with time and sometimes that's even better you know i mean you look at a guy like tom waits um who i didn't get to interview unfortunately but like his his voice now compared to when he was younger it's like a fine wine you know it's it's so much more beautiful now. So, um, you know, it's, it's got so much more character too, you know, it's, it's richer. And so it's just, but it's very interesting how that happens. So what will, you know, for instance, Getty Lee, actually, Getty Lee, when he was younger, really high, really shrill, you know, and he'll say that he'll admit that. And then now Getty's voice is so warm and round and beautiful. You know, it's, it's a, it aged really nicely. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Jason Thomas Gordon is with us this hour. His book is called The Singer's Talk. He's the drummer and lead singer of an L.A. band called King Size. And he sat down with 70 singers from name, names. You're going you're gonna to enjoy these stories, including none other than Bruce Springsteen, a voice that you'll always recognize. Uh, Jason, you were just talking about character, and I thought that was so such a poignant way of putting it, because you're right, you know, singers like Tom Petty, Willie Nelson, who you talked to, Ozzy Osbourne, Bruce Springsteen, they wouldn't get very far on, on American Idol, right? Absolutely not. I mean, that's a, that's a huge part of this book, is just, it's, it's that. It, it really is about, because when you're starting out, for instance, with me, when I first started singing, I didn't want to do this. I did not want to be the singer in my band. And, you know, funny enough, guys like Tom York said the same thing to me. You know, they really? did not want to do it. But you kind of end up struggling through trying to find your way. And you're going, well, look, I can't do I'm not I'm not going to be able to do what Sam Cooke does. I'm not Stevie Wonder. You know, I can't hit these like crazy, crazy notes. But what you end up finding is, and what I ended up finding out through interviewing all these singers as well, is that what the most important thing is, is really about character and your voice. And that's what really cuts through and becomes the thing that the listener responds to. And I'd much rather listen to Tom Petty, who's going to give it to me every time and touch my soul every time, than I would somebody on, you know, some music show that just can hit some crazy high notes and do all that stuff. Sometimes, you know, Nick Cave spoke about this with me a lot too, that, you know, sometimes that soul just that type of soul is one thing, but it's not, it doesn't really like, you know, get your heart. It doesn't grab your heart in the same way. 
Yeah. I mean, was it, was, I should let listeners know you asked the, the, all of these individuals the same set of questions. And there's some really good, some great questions in there, by the way. You know, what's changed most about your voice since you started? Did you emulate anyone? If you could duet with any singer, who would it be? Who are your favorites? And have you ever had any really embarrassing moments? What's your favorite performance? What did Bruce Springsteen tell you? Did any of those questions really stand out for you? Um, yeah. Well, no, I do want to say that, yes, the book is set up so that everybody gets asked the same questions so that mm-hmm. if you're a singer on the road and you start getting sick and you start freaking out, like, Oh my God, what do I do? I'm starting to get sick. What would, you know, what does everybody do? You can quickly turn to each singer and find out the different things that each singer is doing. Right. So it's super easy Guidebook. like that. Yeah. But then I also allow myself to be a complete music fan and there's sections of everybody's interview where then I get specific with them about things about their voice that I want to talk to them about. So there, the interviews open up as well, you know, and so I can have fun with the singers about specific songs or things I want to know. Um, but a guy like Bruce Springsteen, um, he, what was your, what was your specific thing about him that you wanted? to Just, Sorry. yeah. What did you, what did you, what was the most, what was the thing that really stands out when you remember that conversation? You know, he's one of those guys. I knew he was going to make me furious. I just knew it. Uh, I knew he was going to be superhuman. I knew he was going to, like, tell me that he didn't warm up, and he doesn't, you know? And so it's fascinating because then you have guys like Springsteen who are doing three-hour shows night after night, and he's not warming up, which is just the most shocking thing in the world. But everyone's got their thing. Everyone's got their own trip. And you, you find out what works for each person. Um, but the coolest thing about it was just talking to him more about his, the performance and the endurance, you know, and what his philosophy behind how he can go so long every night, you know, and how he views himself and how he wouldn't be the man he thought he was if he couldn't rise to the occasion every night. And he says some really beautiful, spiritual, amazing things that you can take with you. Yeah. I mean, and because he does play those eternal, I mean, he's like a marathon runner of a vocalist. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. You know, we've been asking listeners to talk about their favorite singers, and most of them managed to not mention anyone you had talked to, but we got one. (laughs) Uh, Let's let's play Dionne Warwick. Now, Jason, you know what I love about Dionne Warwick? One note, yeah. and you know it's her. One note, and you know it's right. her. Uh, what was she like to talk to? Because she's from a completely different kettle of fish than Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, well, Dion was actually my first interview. Wow. Um, yeah, and she's been a family friend for a long time. So when I was first starting this book, I went to like a couple close family friends just to see if this would even work. So Dion actually suffered from my lack my lack of experience. <laughs> I'm sure when yeah, it's tough. You yeah. know. When you're first interviewing people on the radio, I'm sure you're not as good at it as you are now. So I I learned real quick, um, and Dion was kind enough to grant me the first one. And I actually just saw her live the other night, um, you know, maybe like a week ago. I went and saw her live out in L.A. And, you know, she's just a beautiful, beautiful soul. You know, she's a beautiful spirit, and she just has an energy about her that's so relaxed and cool and I love her kind of, I just love her confidence. You know, she's casual and she doesn't care. Like if she messes up, she cares about her singing, obviously, but like some people stress out 
when they when they screw up, you know, or or they take it so serious on stage. Dion couldn't care less. You know, if she flubs something, she makes a joke out of it and has a good time with it. And it's wow. just such a great approach, you know. So so she, for her interview, felt really great to just learn about, like, how to have fun and have a casual approach to it. Like, you don't have to be, you know, incredible every single note, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not uh, you're not you're, you're you're getting style points. It's not all performance points. It's Thursday night and a great topic with a great guest, Jason Thomas Gordon. His book is called The Singer's Talk. He is uh, the vocalist, lead vocalist and drummer with a band called King Size. He's sort of the reluctant lead vocalist. So he went out to find out how all those others, all these others, great singers do it. And it turns out there's just not a lot of information out there. There is no guidebook on how to be a great singer. So he thought he would make one. So he sat down, interviewed 70 different people, including Michael McDonald, who you were just listening to. And I bring him up because Denny said a couple of singers whose vocals I really enjoy are Michael McDonald and Alison Krauss. So I thought I'd ask you about Michael McDonald because speaking of distinctive voices, and yet you always get the impression that Michael McDonald could just sort of, he could be lying on the beach and then he would sing just like that if someone said, hey, hum me a tune, that it's so effort, it sounds so effortless with Michael McDonald. Absolutely. I was, I was so thrilled he did the book. I actually asked him, why is he everybody's favorite singer to impersonate? Badly, badly, no less. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you think? What do you um, think of that? <laughs> he started laughing. He, he said he thought it was a. He thought he was like a, It was a joke, and I was like, no, 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 no. We love you, man. We love you. But he was such an engaging interview, and and so great. And you know, I got to ask him all sorts of, you know, not not only the 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 questions about the voice that I'm asking all the other singers, but then I got to ask him you know, tons of fun stuff, like the fact that he co-wrote I'll Wait on Van Halen's 1984 record, you know, and he got he wrote that with that. David Lee Roth. Yeah. So got to ask him about that, you know, what that was like. And, you know, just just a great guy. What does he think about his own voice? Because people love his voice. And it's, again, like like many of the people you spoke to, it's so distinctive. Yet he has that, that ability to be both character and almost perfection. And to some extent, I always thought it might have hurt his career that his voice was too great. You know, you hear Peg by Steely Dan. You, for all you can hear is Michael McDonald in the background, you know, singing. singing yeah, the, yeah, uh, that's so funny. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, we actually talked about that, too. I was asking him about his his background vocal career, you know, not just his lead vocals, but like he his voice really marked that that part of the 70s, you know, whether you want to call it, you know, yacht rock or whatever you want to call it. But there was a there was a time in the seventies where well, like you're saying, the peg and ride like the wind, you oh, know. Yeah. Da, 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 you know, all that yeah. stuff. I mean, like the list goes on and on and on. And uh yeah. so he he got into like the fact that he loved being a background vocal singer. And people said at one point, as even management and radio were saying, like, enough with the Michael McDonald background vocals. He's everywhere. And Michael McDonald was like, I don't care. I don't care if it hurts my career. I love doing it. Wow. And does, does he, you know, did he, did, is he a really one of those people who takes really good care of his voice? Is he someone who's, because he has a very distinctive voice and he sounds a lot now like he did then. Yeah, he does. He does. And he, he talks, oh, you know, one of the things I love about all the singers in the book is how vulnerable they get. You know, I mean, some of them got real emotional, you know. I mean, there were interviews where, where people started, you know, not like crying hysterically, but did start crying a little bit and got emotional about certain things. 
there's so many shocking revelations in this book about just people being so insecure or or protective of the instrument and um you know he he takes it serious he takes it serious and he also had some great advice you know like he actually we we just finished our second album so we haven't started uh touring yet for the for the new record because that comes yeah. out uh in a few weeks but el segundo I, el segundo it's called el I know, segundo, I saw, congratulations, yeah. congratulations yeah thank you yeah but but we're um but i'm excited to like I thought he came up with some really cool ideas for warming up that I'm actually excited to try out. You know, now it's cool because we get to like pick through, cherry pick every singer and kind of figure out what works for you. But I'm really interested in some of the advice he gave. It really, uh, it felt maybe like it's right for me, you know, so I'm, I'm excited about it. Fantastic. We talked about, we played uh, All for One on the way out uh, before the news. And part of that was because I've interviewed Brian Adams a few times, oddly enough, always about his photography, which is strange because uh-huh. he's a great photographer. But he was, yeah. I mean, I, his, the chapter with him in his book is so typically Brian Adams because he is so casual with you about the whole thing, including the fact that on the phone, I gather, he hits that note again, that same note that sort of dominates. I always thought that Brian Adams, I mean, I love Rod Stewart and I like Sting, but I always thought Brian Adams just blew them away on that song. He's so good. He's so good. Yeah. And I was asking him about that note that, ah, you know, yeah. and hitting that note, you know, and how do you do that? I spent like a weekend driving my, my ex-girlfriend bananas, just That's walking awesome. around trying to hit it. And she was like, would you shut up already? I'm like, it's just, it's deceptively, you know, it's a high note, but it's actually it like kind of tough if you're a singer like me, you know? Um, and uh, he kind of gave some tips on how, how he hits that note and how he goes about getting to that spot every night. And uh, yeah, I just couldn't say enough about it. He's actually, the, the interviews are in alphabetical order. So he actually kicks off the book and it's like, the perfect, he sets the tone for the entire book, his interview. I really enjoyed talking to that guy. What, yeah. a, talented, what a talented singer he is. Yeah, and I've interviewed him, and I think what it is about Brian Adams is he's, he can be kind of a tough interview unless you're talking about something that he cares about. He doesn't want to answer sort of the same old questions, but if you touch on why his photography works a certain way, he, he's just, he's a pro, right? And he loves to talk yeah. about his craft. Yeah, absolutely. And it was great to speak with him about doing that duet with Tina Turner and du- and duetting with Pavarotti and like all these amazing stories about them. And he just, you know, a lot of these singers just came with stories that you never hear anywhere else. You know, you just you've never heard a bunch of these stories before. So it was really fun to to get to ask him all those questions. Yeah, I was really surprised about one of the things that really jumped out to me, because, of course, I have to use my voice three hours a night, but I don't have to sing, is that right. getting a good night's sleep, I think a lot of them told you getting a good night's sleep is sort of primordial. And you never think about the rock and roll lifestyle as sort of, hey, I got I to get my eight hours because I have to sing tomorrow night. Lots of humidifiers, you know, air conditioning is the is the enemy. And there was just some yeah. stuff that kept popping up. And I thought, that's really interesting. Of course, of course, that's the way it is. Yeah, it's funny because we're all trained to believe what the music videos show us, you know, yeah, roll out a bed and like belt the, out a tune. Yeah. yeah. You no, know, like, but you know, like, like, especially from like the old rock and roll kind of music videos where it's like, you know, you're seeing all these parties and stuff. And, and what you find when you read this book is how, you know, everybody's like cloistered away in their room and they're actually terrified to go out and party. And, 
they don't want to speak after the shows and you know uh everyone is really like taking like such care of their voice in their own different ways yeah belinda carlisle said the same thing i think she was another one who was just like yeah when i was young i used to just belt and now i protect i protect the instrument yeah 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 and 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 you being you being a dj um you're you know so many singers talk about how how talking is actually worse for your voice than singing right you know and how talking puts more strain on your voice than actually it because there's placement the vocal placement of where we talk from versus where we sing from right so so in other words i i, I realize this i'm trying to remember there's stories out there about about us lead singers not carrying on conversations for the day before they actually have to go out and sing because it, it hurts. Like it's, it's, you're basically running, running before you have to run a marathon. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and just all the, like I said, all that kind of voodoo that comes along with it. Everyone has their own different way of, of dealing with it and all these other like little tricks that they do to keep themselves up for the performance and, it's wild. It's just so fascinating to, to see kind of behind the scenes into what really goes into it. Because I used to think as a drummer, I used to think, man, these people have it made. You know, they don't yeah. have to, like, <laughs> running sucks. You got to, I mean, you got to lug your drums into the gig. You got to put the cymbal on the stand. And, you know, I mean, it takes forever. And singers just kick back, come up on stage casual. They don't have to lug any gear. But it actually is the most terrifying, brutal, painful job in the band. Uh, Jason, I love Smokey Robinson, so I had to ask you about Smokey Robinson because I think as a kid, my dad used to play a lot of Miracles records, so I grew up listening to, you know, Ooh, Baby, and I've always just thought Smokey Robinson, I mean, to be born with a voice of an angel like that, I'd be really interested to know what he had to tell you because he just said all, for him, it just sounds so, so effortless, so effortless. Well, you're right. It is effortless for Smokey. You know, it really is. Um, you know, he has, he, you know, he, he takes care of his voice. He takes it, he takes it serious, but he's not, you know, he's one of those really, you know, there's a couple people in here that are just, it's just God given. And he does, he does little things to protect himself and he has his own little philosophies, but he's one of those guys that's just, he, he feels, you know, he feels as lucky as, as we are to listen to it, you know, he's like, man, I am lucky to have this voice, you know, (laughs) Um, but he's, he's, um, he's a real special guy. I got to, I had the honor of, of actually directing him in a commercial spot a while back for, um, for a campaign I started called music gives to St. Jude kids Mm -hmm. for, uh, that benefits St. Jude children's research hospital, which, which all the money from this book goes to St. Jude. Um, all my money, I should say, all my royalties. But uh, so Smokey actually flew to Memphis with me, and we shot a commercial spot with him and and some of the kids from the hospital where he was trying to teach them how to sing "Get Ready," and you know they're just not having it, and it's really <laughs> funny. And he, I got to, so I got to travel with Smokey Robinson, and I'm telling you, every person that guy comes into contact with that wants a photograph or a hug or whatever it is, he is so kind. He's just the most loving, kind, like he's just so great with his fans. It was so cool to like watch him sort of in the wild, you know, and see who he is as a human being. And he's always been a great supporter of St. Jude, but, but this was different because it wasn't just at the hospital. This is like at the airport or on the street or whatever. 
And uh, I just can't say enough about him. He's just a class act. Yeah, I, and, and we, we we should get to this because this book, the royalties, as you mentioned, and I think uh, Brian Adams pointed it out in his social media post as well. And and St. Jude's, if people haven't heard of it in in Memphis, is first of all a groundbreaking hospital in the American South, opened by Danny Thomas, who is your grandfather, I believe. Don't, I hope I didn't get yeah. that wrong. Uh, no, and it's a it's a really special place. And and part of your work, and you were just mentioning it, part of your legacy too, as much as the music has been this institution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my grandfather founded the hospital in 1962, and his dream was to build a place where, where no child, you know, he just he believed that no child should die in the dawn of life, you know, by cancer or any other life-threatening disease. And he wanted to build this place, especially in the South at that time, which was segregated, where it didn't matter what color you were or what religion you were or how much money you had. If your child was sick with cancer— you come to us and we're going to take care of you. So St. Jude pays for the treatment, the travel, the housing, and the food for all the families. So no family ever receives a bill for any of that. And it's just a really beautiful, remarkable place. One of the main reasons being, too, is that it's called the Hospital Without Walls because we share our research. It's a research hospital as well, and we share our research freely all over the world. So it affects Canada, too. And when St. Jude first opened its doors in 1962, cancer was a death sentence for children. People just wrote it off. They wrote it off. If your child had cancer, they were going to die. That's how it was viewed. And that wasn't good enough for my grandfather. And that at that time, the most, uh, the, for the most common form of cancer, the survival rate was basically 4% when we first got it going. And now, because of the research and protocols developed at St. Jude, the survival rate for the most common form of childhood cancer is now 94%. So it's, it's just such a beautiful spot that when my grandfather passed away, I really wanted to give back. And kind of the way he started it, when he first started the hospital, he was reaching out to his friends in show business for help. You know, he was a stand-up comedian. And he had a lot of success with his TV show. He had a show called Make Room for Daddy. And when he started to raise money to build this this dream that he had, he was reaching out to Elvis Presley and people like Dionne Warwick and Ray Charles and Sammy Davis and Frank Sinatra. So he was 18, I was 18 when he passed away, and um, it just hit me hard. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to carry that on being a musician. I'm going to reach out to the music community and continue doing this and try to get all of us to, to help the mission. And um, so that's what we're doing with this book, you know, where it started off as something I just wanted to do for me, but then it was like, what am I doing? I'm, you know, I'm reaching out to all these people anyway, trying to get them to be a part of, of St. Jude and to help these families. Why don't I just do that with this book? And it, it just made it all the more beautiful to be able to do that. And I got to thank Canada. I got to thank Canada and give Canada their props because right now the book is number one on Amazon for music books in Canada. Oh, so wow. you guys are leading the way right now. Well, you know, there's a lot of there's a Canadian origin story in there. There's a lot of there's a couple of Canadian famous Canadian singers. Kenny oh, yeah. Lee you mentioned. You know, there's some Canadian content as well. Before we go, just just out of curiosity, I mean, I know that that you just it, it, you were you were 
tenacious in trying to get people to sit down with you. What was the most satisfying of those and the hardest to get of these artists that you managed to you managed to settle down with? And what was the most satisfying interview for you? Because they don't always turn out the way you hope, and sometimes they're just perfect. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, I I couldn't single anybody out. I hate to be political all of a sudden, but I mean, every time I got somebody, it was a miracle to me. It was like, are you kidding me? I'm going to talk to another one of my heroes. So I'm so lucky that I got to do this and got to speak to so many of my heroes. And not only that, but there's parts in the book where there are certain singers who have passed away that I didn't get to interview. So I would interview either one of their band members or one of their producers. So I got to talk to Tom Morello about Chris Cornell or, you know, um, Clive Davis about Whitney Houston. You know, there were, Mm -hmm. there's people like that in there too. And you got to get to learn a little bit about their approach or their philosophy. So I just lucked out and I'm, I'm so, I'm just so honored that I got to speak to all these people. It started off with singing is brutal. Now that you've spoken to 70 of the best singers in the world, what do you think? What do you think? I can tell you that my voice on our new record is better than it's been on any of our other records. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. You got a lot. You got a lot of advice. I mean, you got a lot of great advice. Yeah. And there's also just so much. There's so many great anecdotes in there. I suppose I should always ask you: Is there one anecdote in there that really stood out to you? Because I know when you write things down, you sort of think, "Wow, that's funny," or "That wow, that's good." Uh, was there one anecdote in there that you really enjoyed? Um, oh my goodness! Well, I, I let me see. I. Well, I guess I could uh, – Brian Johnson, the singer of ACDC, yeah. uh, you know, he, he – there were so many funny stories that he told. So many. I mean, there's so many funny stories in this book and humiliating yeah. stories, which it's always <laughs> great to listen to stories of your, your heroes getting humiliated. You know, there's, this, there's a certain gallows humor in a lot of these stories, but – Brian Johnson told a great story about being on tour and they were, they were playing a song called ball breaker and he was, you know, riding on a wrecking ball. That's like yes. hanging above the, the stage. You know, he's already terrified of, of heights and now he's up on this thing and he gets a little shove so that the ball will, you know, go swing like a pendulum back and forth. And right when they shoved him, he dropped the microphone by accident <laughs> and the microphone hit the stage, but the band didn't realize that he didn't have the mic. And so it becomes this, you know, complete comedy of errors as he's trying to notify the band that he doesn't have the microphone and it, and it just becomes this hilarious tale. So, you know, a lot of great stories like that where you're just dying laughing at, at you know, your, your, your favorite singers. Jason Thomas Gordon, <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, Canada's justice minister today uh, was asked about this story. Uh, He says, quote, a blunt instrument like the notwithstanding clause has no place in the debate raging across provinces about what parents are entitled to know about their child's gender identity. Arif Arani made his first public comments on the matter after Saskatchewan's Premier Scott Moe told the Canadian press that he was ready to use every tool he had to keep its new education policy in place, the provinces, in the face of court challenges, including, he says, using the notwithstanding clause. I appreciate that families want to be involved in those decisions. I want to be involved in significant decisions in my kids' life also. What I don't appreciate is having the insertion of a blunt instrument like the notwithstanding clause into that equation. 
Well, like in New Brunswick, Saskatchewan has made it a rule that schools have to seek parental permission if a student under 16 wishes to be called by a different name or pronoun. Advocates and other legal experts say such policies target trans and non-binary students and appear to run contrary to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that upholds equality rights. It was the interest around this topic and how two members of one family, a parent and child, came out as transgendered that helped propel my next guest's first book to huge success and acclaim a few years ago. Released in 2019, Love Lives Here, a story of thriving in a transgender family by Amanda Jette Knox at the time, told the story of how a family found acceptance of themselves and each other after a second son came out as as trans uh, and a spouse followed a year later. But behind the scenes, and if you watch the interviews, you know, Everyone's very upbeat, but behind the scenes, it was a very tumultuous and difficult time for Jeté Knox, thriving with the success and the voice and the audience that it provided, but also struggling with some of the backlash coming from several corners and some stuff that hadn't been resolved from long, long ago. And so this new memoir charts that time, including one sunny afternoon where a decision was made to go to a local hospital and ask for help before it was too late. That's how serious it had become. The book is really about one person, but it is filled with lots of moments and struggles that so many readers will be familiar with, but also, again, moments of clarity and hope that show that it can indeed be darkest before the dawn. It also comes with a story of transformation, this time for Jeté Knox, who is now known as Rowan. The book is called One Sunny Afternoon, and its author, Rowan Jette Knox, joins me now. Rowan, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You know, I was reading in this book, and it, it struck me because, you know, writing a book is, is tough. And you said that for the first one, you poured everything into it. And I wondered what made you decide, let's do this all again. <laughs> I also asked myself that question, Ben. Um <laughs> In part, perhaps because I'm a sucker for punishment. <laughs> I mean, it is a lot. And and this book was so much harder to write than the first book. I mean, it was just, it was infinitely harder. But also because sometimes things happen to you that at least, you know, things happen to me sometimes where I think to myself, this terrible, dark, difficult thing happened or this thing that is very misunderstood happened and one of the ways that I can heal from that is to help other people, hopefully, with that story. It, it really helps me to help other people. I know not everybody is like that, but that's that's how I'm built. So that that was sort of the driving force behind this book. Yeah, because if, if listeners don't know, the first book, Love Lives Here, was really about your family. It was about uh, your middle son announcing that that she was a girl living in a boy's body. And then a year later, your husband at the time seeing the same. So this was really about kind of you as the storyteller of a family. This one's really about you. And and that's a tough one to do because you, you dig into a lot of things that I'm sure were really hard to share on the page about your own life long before these other people came along. Yeah, it, it's funny because it's sort of it's not really a sequel to the first book. Uh, it, it, it's definitely, it can be a standalone read. You know, I go into the first book enough in the second book that you sort of have an idea of anything that might be relevant, but it, it is, it, it, it does sort of take the reader back and in far more detail into my life and sort of what made me me and what made me both, I think, 
capable of being able to advocate and write the, you know, the first book and also all of the things that led to me falling apart after the first book came out. Because I've been watching interviews you did after the first book, and you were remarkably upbeat in those. I mean, you've been you were an incredible advocate when after that first book came out, explaining your story, explaining your family's story, how you got into advocacy for trans rights, and it it belied something. It's interesting to look back at those interviews now because if you look read your your new book, you can see that there was a lot going on behind the scenes that that was not so pleasant. Uh, tell me a bit about that. I have this unfortunate ability to very easily cover up what I'm feeling when I need to get through something. And that, and I'll even cover it up for myself. So this is something I've had to become more aware of as, as time goes on. But definitely back then, what was happening was I was both really excited to tell this story, which was largely a very positive story of uh, a family and a community embracing two transgender people coming out and transitioning. It was this, this like really feel good. I want to tell this story because there's so much bad news out there um, surrounding trans people right now. But then underneath that, there was so much pressure and I, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I asked myself all the time, am, am, am I doing the right thing? Thing? Am I hurting the community? Am I giving too many interviews? And then maybe some other people aren't getting interviews who are in the trans community because I'm giving them. And so, so what was going on was like this anxiety was building and building and building. And one day I went online and I started to hear all of the same things I was thinking in my head that I was worried about in my head were being echoed by some people online who felt like, you know, what is this person doing? Why, why is, why is this person giving so many interviews? What right does this person just, you know, have to talk about trans people? And it, it really hit all those really delicate parts inside of me and things just got worse from there. Yeah. And it, it, it harkened back a lot to some of what you'd experienced when you were younger at school, uh, you know, being bullied, being cast out, sometimes that really has a long-term impact on you. So later in life, you react to something like that. You don't just let it's not water off a duck's back when you're being criticized, not just by people who who attack you, but also by people who you thought might be supporting you who start to attack you. And it all culminates, and the title of the book says so, with a really pivotal moment in your life, but but one that that is 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 hard to read. I'll be honest with you because it's tough. It's tough to see someone struggle that way when you'd think they would be at the apex of their lives, you know, best-selling author out there advocating and somehow, in, you know, you're driving yourself to the, down the QEW to a hospital in Ottawa on that Sunday afternoon. Yeah. I, after about, so what happened was that this, this snowball effect happened. This, this is what happens online. So people start to criticize and, you know, criticism. I always, you know, I tend to welcome criticism and people don't have to like what I do, but the way the criticism was dished out, it was never somebody just reaching out to me privately, even though a number of the people who started with the criticism could have, they, they, they knew how to get in touch with me and they, they didn't, they took it public, you know, it, it created this snowball effect where 
a whole bunch of people who didn't know me started to pile on. There were character assassinations. There was mockery. One of my best friends in the world lost her child to cancer at that time. We were mm-hmm. in a pandemic. All these things were happening. I was grieving. And I just, it, it just got worse and worse. All the trolls came in. I was getting threats in my inbox. It was ongoing for about a week. And I finally snapped. I did. I went from this usually fairly positive person, albeit an anxious one, to somebody who wanted to end my life. Uh, I, at the very, very last minute, and I I can't even stress how close I was, uh, drove myself to the hospital and asked for help. Yeah, and the chapter you write about that in the book is 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 gripping and and terrifying in some ways too, because you can tell just from how you explain it how close you came. Uh, and when one looks at it from the outside, again, you think you have this family who loves you, you love them back, you've had success, you know, all this is going right for you, and yet in this very crucial period, you feel like it's all is lost. It is incredible how that can happen, and one of the reasons I wanted to tell this story is because from the outside. Everything did look perfect. And just logistic, you know, logically, logically, things looked really good. Yeah, there was some criticism going on. And as we know, there's an ebb and flow to that on the internet. You're the main character on, you know, X, formerly known as Twitter. You know, you're the main character there for a few days, and then it's somebody else. And, you know, these things, these things just happen. But when there are other things going on, it can create this awful roller coaster. But on the, yeah, on the outside, things looked great. I mean, like Ben, I had a great life. I had I had love. I had wonderful kids. I had a great career. I mean, I was I I went from somebody who was so lost, and you know, I was in rehab at fourteen. I lived on the street at sixteen. I I you know worked my way up from nothing, um, and I had what people would consider to be like I had it all. And I still got to that point. And I, I really want to stress that mental illness doesn't discriminate. It, 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 it will find you if it's going to find you. And I don't want people to think for a second, well, that person can't possibly be struggling because look how great their life is. It doesn't matter. Rowan, one of the things that, that was really interesting, too, about the book and the way it's structured is there is a message of hope in there. There's a message about healing too, and sort of finding finding your own journey through all these things. But what what struck me about it too is just it's not easy. It wasn't an easy process for you, but suddenly things started to come together uh, after that sunny day. When you get the right kind of help and people listen, it can make all the difference. And another reason I wanted to really tell this story is because when I went to the hospital, they did it right. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, they listened to me. They were compassionate. They brought up the possibility that I might have something like PTSD and then got me a psychiatrist to work with me and, and diagnose me properly with a complex trauma disorder. And because of that, I was able to start getting the right types of therapy and, and begin to heal from that. After a lifetime, I was in my mid 40s when this happened. So after a lifetime, I was finally able to, you know, to start turning things around. Um, Yeah. And I mean, things have just continued to get better and better and more and more surprising in some ways because trauma is very layered. And this is something that I didn't understand uh, that I now understand is that, you know, the thing about a trauma disorder, it's not meant to be bad. It's really, it's the brain and the body sort of creating this little shell around you to try and protect you whenever you get triggered. And triggered is a very overused term. We hear it a lot, but it is actually something that happens 
to people who've been traumatized. You get a trigger, you go into a trauma reaction. Well, as your body starts to heal, these layers that it's used to protect itself start to come off. And I have discovered all kinds of things about myself since then, and they've been pretty surprising and good. Yes. Uh, One of the things that you brought up in the book, and I thought this was really touching or telling uh, better yet, was that it's one thing because this comes up a few times with different people that you've met through your life, that it's one thing to sort of shelter yourself from pain or to try to avoid it. And it's another thing to, I'm trying to remember the exact term from the book, but it was about, it was about one of your friends who moved away after a traumatic childhood and and never wanted to go back. And then you mentioned moving back to Elmer when you were very young and you're married and thinking you never wanted to go back either because you grew up there and it didn't have good memories for you, but that there's a difference between avoiding something and sort of accepting something. And, And there's sort of a, it's a nuance, but it was an interesting one that you brought up. Yeah, I do think, you know, I there I always try to ask myself, is it going to benefit me if I work through this? Right. So uh another example I give in the book, you know, is is I I was on a path in, in Ottawa's Greenbelt and I got stung by a bunch of bees. Mm-hmm. And uh I <laughs> ran off and while I was getting stung because this bike had come out in front of me and disrupted a nest. And then I didn't want to go back on that path for a long time. So I had to ask myself after a while, like, would it help you to work through that and and remember that it isn't always like that? You're not always going to get stung by something when you when you walk <laughs> on this path. What are the things I'm missing out on by not walking on this path, by avoiding this, by avoiding this path, this trail that I really enjoyed before? And so I made myself go back and start to work on it. But there are other things where it's like, you know, you know, if somebody is is sober and goes, every time I go to this bar, I want to drink, you know, it's a do you have to ask yourself, do I have to work through that? Do I have to get comfortable in that bar? Or can I just start going somewhere else? And when we figure out what that looks like, that very nuanced sort of look, like you said, that can really help. Rowan Jette Knox has a new book out called One Sunny Afternoon. It came out this week called A Memoir of Trauma and Healing. It is a follow-up to 2019's Love Lives Here. In some ways, not really a follow-up, but that story weighs very heavily on this story uh, that was published uh, uh, under Rowan's former name, Amanda Jette Knox, if you might know that, recognize that name. Um, Rowan, what, one of the things that interested me this, because when I was watching the interviews you did back in 2019, there was very much this discussion of both your spouse and your daughter who had, who had uh, announced that they were transitioning. And you spoke about it very much as an outsider. And then now we understand, now you've understood that you never were an outsider, that you actually understood this it's this desire, this this otherness very, very well. Yeah, <laughs> that really, really shook me when I figured it out. Um, there's there's sort of a joke in the trans community where, you know, they'll say, you know, some of the best allies, you know, the the, the really I'm, I'm just a really good ally to I'm actually trans pipeline is very common. And it is true. <laughs> so, I mean, I I seem to just always understand. And, and and in a way that, you know, a lot of trans people would say, you get this. It's so interesting how well you get this. And I was like, isn't it, though? I don't know why. I guess I just do. Just haha, lots of empathy. As I started to heal from my trauma, the one of the first things I realized is I'm I'm not cisgender. I, I definitely am somewhere on the trans, you know, spectrum, if you will, that yeah. sort of gender, maybe more non-binary. So I sort of shifted into non-binary and that felt pretty good for a while. But as I started to heal more and more, a few months ago, I was like, uh oh, I think I'm actually a man. 
And that I did not want to look at. I was like, there's no way. There's no way there can be three trans people in a family. I was like, there's no way. And I mean, I was just, I came up with every single reason why this could not happen. But I have a great therapist and she helped me through it. And I realized, yes, in fact, I am. I am a man. And I have known that most of my life. And I have buried it very, very carefully from myself and everybody else up until the time when I couldn't, I couldn't carry that weight anymore. What was the family reaction? Because I know you were asked countless times uh, when the first book came out about how you reacted to your daughter, how you then reacted to your wife. And and you have two other boys, I should say. Uh, You have two boys. There's a girl and two boys in your family. How did they react to you? Because in some senses, you were kind of the constant in this to some extent. And, And then here you are and you were also changing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I felt so bad. It was so funny. I am in, I am the, one of the best positioned people to come out in a family and receive support. I mean, given who my family is and what we've all been through together. And still I was really nervous because that was what I was afraid of. I was afraid of, I'm so sorry, but the constant that you had is not actually a constant and everybody has been wonderful. Every single person has been incredible. Every, all the kids, they've all made ki- all kinds of jokes. I sat down with one of our kids and and told them and their first, their first comment was, so you're a guy. Okay. Uh, are you going to start grilling? Like, do we need to get you a kiss the cook apron? Do you need like a barbecue now? You know, and there was like this whole like line of joking. My son was like, so you're taking me fishing then? And I was like, dude, we've never been fishing in our lives. Like, well, you know, you're a dad step up. So there's, there's been like this, this, it's just been jokes and they just, they're just so wonderfully accepting. Yeah. There's a few moments in there where you sort of talk about this. First of all, the name itself, Rowan, uh, suggests strength. And then there's a a story about a a phoenix tattoo, which also suggests many, many other things. Mythologically, of course, we know. But uh, you talked about being alive for the first time. And and that's that's interesting because, again, the first book was a lot about you and the family. And this book's about you. I have spent my entire life putting other people before me. And I I don't necessarily regret that. I I I love that I've been able to be there for the people in my life. They they have been wonderful and they deserve that. But it is now time for me to be there for me. And this is what it really came down to when everything, you know, hit the fan, so to speak. And I had to take a step back and learn to prioritize myself. That's when I realized that I had no choice but to start really putting Rowan front and center. So yeah, it is, it has been, um, it's been, it's been quite a journey, but it has been such a worthwhile one. I'm, I, I don't regret it. I really, I don't regret anything. You know, people are like, do you wish you would have transitioned sooner? And I'm like, no, not necessarily. I think I'm transitioning when it has been time, when it's time when I am ready to transition. That's okay. I've had a really wonderful life. I really have in so many ways, which is weird because I just wrote a book about trauma, but there has been so much that has been good and it just keeps getting better. And this is just, this is icing on the cake. I wake up every single morning and I'm like, I get to be me for the rest of my life. I, I came out August 1st publicly, and this has not gone away yet. I, there's a, a, a portion of the book, and because I spent a lot of time in Ottawa, my mom lived there when I was uh, when I was growing up, uh, at a Red Blacks game where you say, I'm alive. And I thought, if you know Ottawa well enough, that might be the least likely place to think I'm alive. It's at a Red Blacks game, but it was right? a great it was a great little moment because it really encapsulated a lot of. I mean, of course, you grew up right across the river from Ottawa. It, it sort of it was a lot of full circle there. I found. 
Yeah, it is so funny. I, I thought here I am at a, at a at a football game. How's that going to go over? And I am I'm just standing in front of this crowd, and and all these thousands of people are cheering and and listening to you know my story and my family's story and the work that I've done in the community. And it just it was really magical. But yeah, I just I just feel so alive in a way that I never did before I had my mental health crisis, before I had that breakdown, before I felt suicidal. I just, I, there was always something missing. And that missing part was being able to really lean into life without as much fear as I had before. And now that I can do that, I I feel like I can do anything. There's so much around this now that I'm sure you'd like that we should speak about, you know, and I understand sometimes people come, you know, not everyone comes from a place of hate. A lot of times people come from a place of fear and misunderstanding. And I was again, I know that when this all began for you, I guess a decade ago now that you had a lot of learning to do and probably a lot of fear to conquer, too. And when you look at the conversations going out on out there, what do you tell people? I mean, it's 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 a bit of a it's a bit of a loaded question, but what do you tell people out there with all this stuff swirling around in society. I think it's always best to learn from the source. So right now we're seeing a lot of misguided information, a lot of disinformation, which is different from misinformation because this information is uh, constructed to be harmful. So uh, you might hear things about the trans community that are just completely made up their lies. And then that turns into misinformation. And that misinformation is what gets spread around by people who really don't know any better. That's just what they've heard. And then, you know, the harm that happens then is that people push for changes to be made that that restrict or remove rights from trans people. It is a really frightening time to be trans. It, it absolutely is. And it was another reason why I needed to come out right now, because I have the voice, I have the platform, I have the, privil- the privilege to be able to help have this conversation. And I just feel like if you get to know trans people, get to know me, get to know somebody else, we are everywhere. We're, we're never going away. We're always going to be here. So just get to know us and you get to see that we're just like everybody else. We don't need to be living in fear of something we don't understand. There's no need to to be ignorant, even, you know, ignorant in a way that, you know, and I, I say ignorant, not in a mean way. I say ignorant as in like, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. Go follow some trans people, listen to us, listen to an interview, listen to a, you know, watch a video, read a book. There are so many ways to see that we are really just like you and we just want to live our lives. One thing that uh, I should point out too, because I think sometimes even myself, you know, I, I think I entered your book with a certain conception of what it was going to be about. And I came out of your book thinking this is, this could be for anyone. You could read this. It doesn't matter what your journey has been, that there's a lot in here for anyone to hold on to. Yeah, I wanted to write this book with sort of that openness in mind. I wanted people to be able to see that, you know, some of these, some of the issues that I deal with are issues that a lot of other people deal with anxiety, depression, feeling alone, feeling rejected or abandoned, needing to, to get help. Um, you know, there's so many different, you know, bullying, there's so many different elements in there. And I just happen to be somebody who's trans who wrote the book. It's not what it's about. It's just part of my identity. And that's the other thing about, about, about trans people. That's not all that we are. We are so many things. And I think you see that in this book. 
what now is there another one is there is there a third coming is have you thought about any of this i guess you've just you're just about to embark on on the public sort of publicizing this one which i think in of itself is kind of a scary proposition because you have to put yourself right back out there in the public eye but uh, what next well, there, there is. People have been asking about a third book because, again, so many more things have changed even since, you know, since since the ending of this book. I'm, I'm sort of embarking on this new journey as well in, uh, you know, moved to Toronto. There's, you know, it came out as a trans guy. There's so many things. I will probably look at writing a third book. Yes. Uh, after after I do a bit of media and then a nap. <laughs> Which a well-deserved <laughs> nap, I should say. Well, uh, Rowan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me.